You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. If I could invite you to stand one more time for our New Testament reading, which will once again be in Ephesians chapter 2. Begin in verse 4, of course, the context being of the absolute deadness of the sinner. Hear now the word of the Lord, written by the Apostle Paul. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the everlasting word of God, meant for our eternal good. May the Lord write the truths of it to our hearts. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we remember in your great high priestly prayer, speaking of your church, you said they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then you ask the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we remember this prayer. And we ask this morning as we come together to hear your word, that you would do that wondrous work of sanctification. Transform us into the image of Christ for your glory, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Folks, throughout the years, as we walk with the Lord and seek to grow in grace, there are certain portions of Scripture, treasured verses of the Bible that become so precious to us. They're like rare jewels that we're storing up in a safe. And so it is that we hide the word of God in our hearts. And day after day, we open up that treasure and we gaze at the glory of God that he has revealed to us in his unchanging word. In Psalm 119, King David said, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil." 
Friends, I'm sure that there are certain portions of Scripture that God has used in your own life to quiet your troubled mind. Precious promises that give you strength in your time of weakness. Divinely inspired texts that supply much-needed wisdom when you are facing difficult decisions. There are some portions of Scripture that are so important to our understanding and our communication of the gospel that we simply must commit them to memory. For instance, Judith, you know this one. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 and 24, Paul said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I'm sure many of you know that verse. But as I was meditating on that verse this week, I thought, boy, oh boy, this is an excellent summary of the text that we have been working through in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember this, although we were dead in sin, separated from the life of God following the influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil for his own glory. God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, if you haven't already done so, from our repeated readings, I would suggest that you memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you were my kids on Wednesday night, we would erase some of those words and force you to say it without the words that are erased. But let's say this together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As we discovered last week, grace is the source of our salvation. Christ is the ground of our salvation. Faith is the means of our salvation. And the glory of God is the goal, the goal of our salvation. One of the reasons why so many Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation is because they are focused on what they themselves have done. They testify to a decision that they made an aisle that they walked, a prayer that they prayed when they were 12 years old. But this self-focused manner of thinking promotes a wrong and passive view of God as if he's just sitting there in heaven waiting for us to approach him. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this passive view of God in these words. I think they're very wise he said, we think, of course, if I go to God, he will listen to me. He will answer me. He will bless me. But in that way, we think of the real activity as always being on our part. God has great gifts to give, but he does nothing about it. Hmm. He just waits until we do something, and then when we take action, God response? Friends, the God of the Bible is the sovereign Lord 
over all things. He is not a passive observer. Scripture clearly teaches us the activities of God. As a matter of fact, in the very first verse of the Bible, we read that God is active. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in creation. He's the one who said, light be, and light was. By his word, he created the material creation. It was formed, and biological life came into being. He formed man from the dust of the earth. He breathed the breath of life into man's lungs, and man became a living being. And when man sinned, it was God who pursued man, not man who pursued God. And then God revealed his plan of redemption that would come through the seed of a woman. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wonderfully highlights all of the activity of God whereby he would redeem a remnant of sinful men for himself. Remember this, in eternity past, for the display of his glory, God chose a people for himself and ordained that they would be delivered from the power and the penalty of death. By grace, they are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. When we were dead in sin and transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It was God who raised us up in a spiritual resurrection and seated us with Christ in heavenly places. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, our salvation had to be a gift of God, not of works, so that none of us would go around heaven boasting of what we ourselves have done. There are many people in the church today who would say that because salvation is not by works, then works must not really matter much to God. They would say that those who believe in Jesus, those who have responded to an invitation, those who have prayed the sinner's prayer and invited Jesus into their hearts, well, now they are eternally secure because their sins, past, present, and future, have all been forgiven. It really doesn't matter how they live their lives. Their salvation is secure even if they continue in a lifestyle of sin and never, ever bear any spiritual fruit at all. But friends, that's not what the Bible teaches us. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul asked the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And in very powerful words, he said, by no means. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know, years ago, I officiated a funeral, sad funeral, for a 37-year-old man who had never set foot in the church, although he lived a life of drunken immorality, his parents assured me that their son was in heaven because he invited Jesus into his heart when he was just a little boy. Those who hold such a light view of salvation need to be reminded of the words that Jesus spoke in, John, in Matthew chapter 7. On that day, on that day, 
Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul made it abundantly clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as it is revealed in the Scriptures alone. But as Martin Luther said, saving faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works that God foreordained that we should walk in. Now, because of this delicate balance of faith and works, because this is so important, we're going to focus on just one verse this morning, on Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where Paul said this. He said, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, here's our outline for this morning. Okay, we're going to look first at God's masterpiece. Second, we'll look at God's new creation. Finally, we'll look at our new works. God's masterpiece, God's new creation, and our new works. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul describes those who are born of God as God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Now, as many of you may already know, the Greek word that is translated workmanship is the word poema, poema, okay? It is the root word from which we receive our English word poem, poem. And in the ancient Greek, poema was a general term that was used for many different kinds of works of art. It could refer to a statue. It could refer to a song. It could describe a poem, an architectural design, or maybe even a painting. All of these were poema. But here, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the word is used to describe the church, the redeemed people of God. Here's what F.F. F. Bruce said. He said, we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. And then he said, I don't think there is any more exalted description of a believer in all of Scripture. Well, in all honesty, poema is not necessarily the word that comes to mind when I look at myself in the mirror. Right? I look at the outer man, which is perishing, right? I look at the outer man. But God, well, God sees the heart. I see my frailty, but he sees the glorious work of redemption that he himself has brought about through the work of his own son. He sees me in Christ, washed from all of my filthiness. He sees the righteousness of Christ that he himself has robed around me. And while I still wrestle with the old man, he has declared that I am a new creature in Christ, that the old has passed and the new has come. My friends, we are, we are God's workmanship, his poema, recreated, made new in Jesus Christ. 
As the master architect and creator of all things, God powerfully brought, powerfully brought the universe into existence for a display of his glory. King David describes the majestic handiwork of God when he said this. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, the sky above, proclaims his handiwork. And there have been times in my life where I was truly overwhelmed by the beauty, by the wonder of God's glorious creation, observing the majesty of a sunrise standing on the top of Mount Haleakala in Maui, awestruck by the power of the ocean beating against the shore in hurricane-force winds, standing on the top of a mountain in Utah, in the midst of a blizzard. These were amazing works of the hand of God in his glorious creation, not to mention the birth of my own three children. To see the majesty of God's creative work, it overwhelms me. But here, but here, Paul said that nothing in all of creation can compare to the beauty and the wonder of God's redeeming grace that is revealed in his beloved people. In verse 10, he tells us that we have, who have been redeemed are the ultimate display of God's handiwork. We are his poem. We are his masterpiece. According to Paul, the glory of the new creation far surpasses the glory of the original creation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself. By a powerful and majestic work of God, those who were chosen before the creation of the world are born again by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you'll remember this in John chapter 3, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, that, that great teacher of Israel. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Excuse me, John 3, 5 and 6. Of course, Nicodemus, well, you know, he didn't understand this. He thought to himself, how can I possibly climb back up into my mother's womb and be born again? How is that possible? Jesus answered him in verse 10 saying, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Nicodemus was the teacher, the teacher in Israel. He was the most renowned, most sought-after professor of the law in all of Israel. He knew the writings of the Old Testament inside out, but he didn't understand at this point that Jesus was referring to the regenerating work of God that was foretold by the prophet Ezekiel. We read this earlier, but let me refresh your memory. Ezekiel wrote and said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all of your uncleanness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My friends, as new creatures in Christ, all those who have been reconciled to God All those who have been joined to Christ by faith are equipped by God with a new capacity to perform good works. They have received a new heart. They have received a new spirit. And all of those who are born of God have a new affection for God and a newfound ability to walk in accord with God's statutes and obey his rules. That's what the prophet Ezekiel said. This is a result of the new birth. You'll have a new heart. You'll have a new spirit. And you will walk in my ways. Wow. In verse 9, Paul taught us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by our works. But here in verse 10, he tells us that our salvation will result in and be displayed by good works. We need to get this right. As I said before, good works are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the cause of our salvation, but they are the natural results of the regenerating, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul said that Jesus died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In John chapter 15 and verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The fruit of good works does not make us Christ's disciples. It glorifies God and serves as one of the many proofs that we are indeed true disciples of Christ. In his commentary, Richard Phillips said this. He said, all this shows that good works are necessary to salvation. Necessary not as a condition or cause, but as a consequence. Without good works, there is no reason to believe that you are a disciple of Christ. And there is much reason to doubt that you are. Strong words. He went on. Dr. Phillips went on to quote the Apostle John, who said this. He said, by this we may know that we are in him. This is how we know that we are in Christ. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We who believe ought to walk, ought to live our lives in the same way in which Christ, our Lord, walked and lived his life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Now, throughout his epistle, John urges us to make honest, biblical evaluations of our own lives to see if we are in the faith. 
So let me ask you, do you have a desire to walk as Jesus walked? Are you one who could be described as being zealous for good works? Are you bearing good fruit, good fruit for the glory of God? Well, as I was contemplating the artistic work of God in fashioning a people for his own glory, that poema that we were looking at, I was reminded of the words of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet who said this, he says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the works of your hand. Once again, in this context, God is spoken of as a craftsman who is shaping, who is molding a people for the display of his glory. Now, you may not be all that glorious yet today, but one day, as he continues his good work within you, you will grow, grow, In the image of Christ, you will be changed from glory to glory to glory to glory into his image. Through the new birth, God makes us vessels that are fit for the master's use. He uniquely designs each and every one of us for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And now that we understand the creative power of God that has transformed our lives, let's consider the good works. What are they? The good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Let's think about that. Just as he chose us before the creation of the world, just as he predestined us for the adoption as sons in Christ, so he has prepared, he has foreordained certain works that would characterize our lives as his chosen people, works that we should walk in, that he has foreordained that we should walk in. Now, some of these good works are common to all of us. They're common to all people who believe, those who have been cleansed from sin, those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember this, Ezekiel said, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Alexander McLaren, when he's writing about this, he said this. He said, cleansing is a wonderful work of God, but it is incomplete without a new life principle which shall keep us clean. And that can only be God's spirit enshrined and operative within us. For only thus shall we walk in his statutes and keep his judgments. When the lawgiver dwells in our hearts, the law will be our delight. And keeping it will be the natural outcome and expression of our life, which is his life. He lives in us. This natural expression of the new heart and the new spirit will be those good works that he foreordained. King David said, he said, I delight, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is in my heart, Psalm 40, verse 8. And so it is that we who have been born of God possess a newfound delight in God's moral law. In God's moral law. 
Let's think about that for a minute. We delight to worship God alone. There are no other gods before him. We have renounced all the multitude of idols that we formerly worshipped. We reverently honor God's name and find our rest in the Lord's day. We willingly submit to the authorities that God has instituted. Children, submit to your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We willingly now, through Christ, submit to the authorities that he has established. We do not walk in violence or hatred. We guard our hearts from the lust of the eyes. We respect the property of others. We rejoice to speak the truth in love, and we seek to be content with God's gracious provision and do not covet as others. In this way, because he has put his spirit in our hearts, because he has given us a new heart, now we walk in his ways. There are good works. There are good works that God has all believers to walk in. We are compelled to participate in and called to pray. We all pray, don't we? That's a good work that God foreordained that we should walk in. To share the gospel is another work that God foreordained that we should walk in, to gather together for worship as we do often. That is another one of God's good works. We're called to love. We're called to support one another with the resources that God has graciously provided to us. As new creatures in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, uniquely called and gifted by God, each one of us has a work to do. Paul told the Romans, now here we go from things that we all do to unique things that God has gifted you to do as one of his children. Romans chapter 12 and verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Well, just as the various parts of our physical body function together for the good of the whole body, God has supplied every member of his body with unique gifts, with unique talents that are designed to function in unity for the good of the whole body. In verse 6, Paul gives us a few examples of those gifts that he's given to various people severally as he wills. He said this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. If it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. And while all of us are called to share the gospel, God has specifically gifted some members of the body to proclaim his word in power. All of us are called to serve, but there are some people who seem to have service just programmed into their DNA. When we say at the end of a service, we need to move these chairs, it's like, yeah, baby, let me move those chairs. They have the gift of service. Paul went on to say in verse 8, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Some people 
while some people possess an extra measure of godly wisdom through which they are able to counsel and encourage other people. Some people just love to give, and God has endowed them with resources so that they can do just that. Some people have an abundance of mercy, an abundance of mercy. You'll find them. They come alongside of people who are hurting, and because their hearts are always glued to that person who is hurting, they need to remember to be cheerful because they can be burdened down with other people's trials. So he exhorts us here, you who have gifts of mercy, be cheerful. Be cheerful. Now, Paul went on. He said he went on to talk about this, and he said in verse 9, let love be genuine. You see, love is the motivation for using all of these gifts. We serve because we love. We respond in obedience to God's call. Why? Because we love him. And in turn, we love one another. All those who are born of God have been cleansed from the filth of their sins. They've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, he says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Those who have received from God a new heart and a new spirit, every one of them has been brought together in one body to do those good works that God has foreordained that we should walk in. We who once bore the image of the first Adam The man of the earth now bear the image of the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. Together we have become a new humanity. We'll hear about that in the weeks to come. We are a new humanity, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And since he has called us, called us out of darkness. Now he has said, walk in the light, even as he is in the light. And by walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And as we do that, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 